0: My text is taken from Micah, chapter 2, verse 3. I will simply read this verse for you, which in effect summarizes the rest of what will be said this Lord's Day from that chapter. Micah, chapter 2, verse 3. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family do I devise an evil, from which ye shall not remove your necks, neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. When God's righteous judgment is upon a nation, it falls not only upon the body, but also it falls upon the soul of the people. Since the Lord created man, body, and soul from the very beginning, the Lord also cursed both body and soul when Adam fell from the estate wherein he was created by sinning against God. As you consider Genesis chapter 3, you see that when Adam had sinned by taking the fruit and eating of it, that he hid himself from God. The spiritual nature of sin brought consequences to his soul. Furthermore, we see in this particular chapter that God brought upon Adam and Eve the curses which affected their body as well. And so we find that God does judge man, both body and soul. Well, likewise, just as God has cursed man from the very beginning, body and soul, so we see in regard to redemption. Redemption corresponds to that judgment. The Lord redeems us. Not only our soul, not only our spirit, the Lord redeems our body. He saves us from the wrath to come. He, He saves and rescues us from sin. He saves us from eternal death and hell. But He also redeems this body by raising it up on the last day. He does not leave the body in the grave. He raises it up. As far as sin has affected us, so far God's redemption reaches to save us. The Lord continues since the fall to display a twofold blessing upon the body and soul of a nation that enters into a matrimonial covenant to be the Lord's people and to walk according to his ways. And he also continues with a twofold cursing upon the body and soul of a nation that despises that matrimonial covenant by going after other gods, by going after other religions, and by oppressing their brethren. In this particular chapter, or in the first two chapters of Micah, we have seen in chapter 1 that in fact, the sin which Israel and Judah were particularly uh, uh, accused of committing. The lawsuit which God brought against them had to do with their falling away from the Lord, had to do with their idolatry, their superstition in worship. And so, correspondingly, God brings His judgment upon their soul. But it was not limited to their idolatry, It was not limited to their soul. It was also manifest in their body because they oppressed their brethren. And so their sin from idolatry reached out against their brethren to oppress their brethren. And God also issues His judgment upon their body because of the sin they had committed with their body. Dear ones, this truth deeply affects each of us for the people and nations of England, Ireland, and Scotland and their posterity such as the United States, Canada, Australia, and other nations were bound in matrimonial covenant to the Lord their God by means of the Solemn League and Covenant. Wherein we find in the Solemn League and Covenant that we and our posterity after us May as brethren live in faith and love, and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. That was a covenant, to be the Lord's in a unique and special way as a nation. That is covenantal language when it says in the solemn league and covenant that the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. That's covenantal language, for it's the same language that we find concerning Israel. In Exodus twenty-nine forty-five, where the Lord says, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. You see, dear ones, although it is a great and enormous privilege to be married to the Lord as a nation, yet the Lord our God will not hold those guiltless who take His name in vain in their national covenants. The Lord's covenant judgment will manifest itself not only in bodily uh, afflictions, but also in spiritual delusions. Not only in natural famines that destroy the body, but also in spiritual famines that destroy the soul. Dear ones, such twofold famines from the Lord our God are not only threatened upon covenanted nations of old like Israel and Judah, but they are also threatened upon covenanted nations in this age as well. This is not simply good history. This is continuing history. This is the way the Lord, our God, who changes not, continues to work with nations who covenant themselves to Him. And the prophecy of Micah, it was not heeded by the covenanted nations of Israel and Judah. Will it be heeded by the covenanted nations of today. Thus the Lord's day, this Lord's day, we shall consider then the twofold judgment threatened against the covenanted nations of Israel and Judah. First of all, the judgment against the body, against the body of Israel and Judah. And second, the judgment Against the soul of Israel and Judah. Let's then consider that very first point then. The Lord's judgment threatened against the body of his people. That is a judgment that will affect their physical substance. The first thing that I note concerning this judgment against the body is that it is a judgment that is just and proportionate. It is a judgment that is equal to the sin that is committed. In verses 3 through 5, note these words from the prophecy of Micah. Micah chapter 2 verses 3 through 5. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family do I devise an evil from which ye shall not remove your necks. Neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. In that day shall one take up a parable against you and lament with a doleful lamentation and say, We be utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me? Turning away, he hath divided our fields. Therefore, thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. A judgment that is just and proportionate. Here we find, dear ones, the Lord's judgment is measured out in accordance with with the sin that Israel and Judah have committed there is a principle that is stated in scripture which is which is invariably true according to Matthew chapter 7 verse 2 the lord proclaims this particular principle i read for you <clears throat> for with what judgment ye judge ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Whatever standard that you use with regard to judgment, with regard to condemnation, with regard to oppression, with regard to anything, as you apply it to others, God says that same standard will be applied to you. It is a principle which God uses as He pours out His judgment upon nations, as He pours out His judgment even upon His people. As He chastises, as He corrects us, His people. That measure that we use toward others, God will use toward us. The Lord says, in effect, take heed to us all. Similarly, the Lord says, in Luke chapter 6, verses 37 and 38, very similarly <clears throat> Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give and it shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down and shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet withal, it shall be measured to you again. Now this does not mean that we are not to form any judgments about others. That we are however to use righteous judgment. If we ex Go beyond, however, righteous judgment. We become very harsh in the way we we treat others. God says, in so doing, that judgment will likewise fall upon you. Be careful, the Lord says. Not that we shouldn't form judgments, Not that we shouldn't uh, look at sin within our own life. But that is what the Lord is saying. Begin with yourself. Don't try and take out the speck in your brother's eye. When there's a moat or a a log in your own. Begin with yourself. Exercise righteous judgment. And we see in this case, in Micah, Israel and Judah had, according to chapter 2, verse 1, devised, that's the word that's used there, devised iniquity against their helpless brethren. And so God according to chapter 2, verse 3, it uses the same word, God has devised an evil against them. Because they devised evil against their brethren. God has devised. When it says evil, it doesn't mean moral evil. It means calamity. It means judgment. God has devised this against them. Just as Israel and Judah had spoiled as we see in chapter 2, verse 4. They had, they had spoiled... Actually, we see that in chapter 2, verse 2. God then says He will spoil them. And Israel and Judah cry out in verse 4, We are spoiled. Why? Because you spoiled others. You robbed others. You oppressed others. You did not lend your ear. You did not... Open your ear to the cries of those who are helpless and therefore God will close his ears and the ears of others to your cries and your helpless estate. Remember the words of James in James chapter 2 verse 13 for he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed No mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. That is, James is saying, the one who is merciful, who has shown mercy to the saints, who has shown mercy to those who are poor within the congregation... Those who are needy, who has shown mercy to the elders of the congregation, who has shown mercy to the pastor of the congregation. Where there is mercy shown, so will you receive mercy. How prone we are first to cry out like Israel and Judah of old when we experience God's righteous chastening in our lives. As as they cry out in chapter 2, verse 4, How hath He removed it from me? Turning away, He hath divided our fields. In other words, Israel and Judah, when threatened with judgment, why is the Lord afflicting me? Why has He threatened judgment upon me? Why has He turned His face away from me? What have I done? See, this was the initial response of Israel and Judah. As if, as if they were without sin. As if they did not need the chastening hand of the Lord upon their lives. Dear ones, how prone we are to utter those same words, that to be the first response out of our mouth. Why me? You know, these are the sentiments of a proud heart. Whereas the humble cries of those who are waiting upon the Lord who are searching their hearts before God, who are continuously repenting of their sin, embracing Christ, fleeing to Christ. The cries of these are in the words of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9. Listen to the words of Daniel, who is considered to be by other of the prophets. He is exalted as one of the most righteous of men of his time. And yet, listen to the words of Daniel in chapter 9. Just going to read three or four verses from this, not necessarily consecutively through the chapter. In verse 4, Daniel prays, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love Him and to them that keep His commandments. He says in verse 5, We have sinned, and have committed iniquity, and have done wickedly, and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. O my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. See, here is one who recognizes his sin, even though he is accounted to be one of the righteous of God's saints. And yet he recognizes that he is a sinner in continual need of the forgiveness, of the mercy, of the grace of God. Not only should we note from these verses that this judgment that comes upon the body of Israel and Judah, that it is not only just and proportionate, but that secondly, it is a judgment for abused Privileges. In verse 10 of Micah chapter 2, <clears throat> the prophet says, Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest. Because it is polluted, it shall destroy you even with a sore destruction. <clears throat> Israel and Judah had misplaced their faith and confidence. Whereas their faith and trust should have been in the Lord their God alone, they had a false sense of security that everything was going to be all right because God had graciously given them certain external privileges which were intended not as ends in themselves, but were intended as means to enjoying God, to glorifying God, to worshiping God, as he had commanded. And yet these means had become that in which Israel and Judah gloried. And because they gloried in these means, even the land which God had given to them, as a rest, even the temple which God had given to them as a rest, even the priesthood which God had given to them as a rest, as an indication of the peace, the rest that they have in the Lord their God. Not because of what they do, this was all given to them of God's free grace. But they rested in the external privileges, they rested in the gifts. They did not rest with confidence in the Lord their God. They were satisfied and complacent that they were the people of God because they had these external privileges given to them. That was enough for them. You see, they had divorced the Lord from his benefits. And we're always going to find ourselves in great trouble when we, when we divorce and separate the Lord Himself from the benefits which He bestows so that we begin to glory in the benefits and forget the giver of those benefits. How many professing Christians like, like the, and enjoy the blessings of salvation but despise the trials of the cross? You see, was, it's a package. If we would share in His glory, we must share in His sufferings. If we would have Christ as Savior, we must have Him as Lord. If we would have Christ as our priest, we must have Him as our prophet and our king. If we would have God as Father, we must receive His loving rebuke and His fatherly chastening. If we would have the Holy Spirit, we must receive His comforts, but also His conviction. You cannot separate God, you cannot separate Father, Son, or Holy Spirit from their benefits, which they bestow. Because Israel and Judah trusted in their land, their temple, and all their outward privileges, the Lord said to them, Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest. Because you have, in effect, God says, because you have polluted the land and the temple and the priesthood by trusting in it or in those external privileges, they shall, in effect, be your destruction. They become a curse to those who do not use them as God has ordained them. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, if we do not come worthily, if we do not use the Lord's Supper as God has ordained, it becomes a judgment to us. Even so does our baptism. Even so does hearing the Word of God each Lord's day. If one comes and does not hear, receive, and obey the Word of God as it is preached. It is a savor of life to life to those whom God has called. But it is a savor of death to death to those who are perishing. Again, dear ones, we see the justice of God in that He judges the people by turning that in which they trust Against them. We see that today. If people trust in armies to deliver their nation, God will send armies against them to subdue that nation. If a nation trusts in its wealth, God will bring economic disaster so as to humble them. If they trust in the approval of man, he will turn man against them. If they trust in their pleasures, their pleasures will become a source of falling away into destruction. If they trust in their technology, God will use their technology against them. If they trust in their external privileges, their external privileges will become a curse to them. Beloved, external privileges such as our national covenant by means of the solemn league and covenant to be the Lord's and to be his alone. It makes us not less accountable. We cannot hide in the Solemn League and Covenant and think everything's okay. It becomes a means of cursing and judgment if we do not obey out of love and trust in the Lord our God. To whom much is given, much is required, the Lord says. And thirdly, as we consider the judgment God would bring upon the body of Israel, I would have you note that this is a judgment which the Lord Himself brings. Consider verses 12 and 13 of Micah chapter 2. The Lord says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Bozrah, as the flock in the midst of their fold, They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The breaker is come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. As we consider briefly the words that we find here in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, I should note that there are those who have interpreted these verses to be a pledge of God's mercy that would yet be poured out upon these covenanted nations of Israel and Judah. And it is certainly true that the Lord does in the prophetic writings promise that his mercy will yet be extended to Israel and Judah. For although they may forget their covenant with the Lord, yet the Lord their God will not forget His covenant with them. And He will restore them. He will bless them yet. He will yet show His mercy. In spite of their unfaithfulness, God will be faithful to His covenant. However, others have understood verses 12 and 13, to refer to the judgment God would bring upon Israel and Judah. And with these, I'm in agreement. I submit to you the following considerations. First, the immediate context is one of God's judgment without any apparent transition to God's blessing between verses 11 and 12. Second, the Hebrew word for assemble that's found in chapter two, verse twelve, or verse, yeah, chapter two, verse twelve, is used for an assembling of God's judgment within the walls of Jerusalem and other cities of Judah in Jeremiah eight fourteen, where He assembles His people within the walls for the judgment that is about to fall upon them by the Babylonians in Jeremiah eight fourteen. And finally, the word that we find in chapter 2, verse 13 of Micah, the word breaker, in its participial form, is never used of a blessed breaking, but only of a cursed breaking. In other words, this breaker most likely refers to the Babylonian king who broke down the walls of Jerusalem. This is the breaker who would stand before them. <clears throat> Calvin observes in his commentary on this passage, and I quote, so in this so in the present passage God declares that there would be a gathering of the people for what purpose? Not that being united together they might enjoy the blessings of God, but that they might be destroyed. And assembling and gathering the flock within the walls of Jerusalem in order that God might bring the Babylonians against them and bring about their destruction and lead them out of the gate into captivity. This view is also endorsed by Beza, who is Calvin's successor in the notes to the Geneva Bible and by the Westminster annotations, among others. But I want to emphasize, before we move on to our next main point, although the Lord would use earthly means and human agency to bring his judgment upon Israel and Judah, nevertheless, let none mistake who it is that is going before the Assyrians and the Babylonians in leading these backslidden, covenanted nations into captivity. Don't be mistaken. It is the Lord who is at the head of them. The scripture says, though he will lead their king out of the gates of Jerusalem, though he will lead that king into captivity, nevertheless, the Lord will be at the head of them, directing them into captivity. It is his judgment that is upon them. We might be asking the question, What about the external afflictions that come upon the child of God? Thinking more personally rather than nationally. What about those afflictions of various kinds that come upon God's people? Whether illnesses or natural catastrophes, whether the death of children or loved ones, whether that unwanted divorce or persecution for righteousness' sake? Or economic disruption in a family or in a nation that affects the people of God? How should we view these trials? Again, dear ones, we must not separate God from His essential attributes as He does bring forth his judgment. Just as we cannot separate Christ from his benefits, so we cannot separate God from his attributes, otherwise we form a God of our own imagination. Consider this. We must not, first of all, dissociate the sovereignty of God from anything that happens to us in our lives. God has eternally decreed all that comes into the lives of his children. There are no accidents. It is eternally decreed by God. Ephesians 1:11 says, speaking of God who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Second, we must not dissociate the wisdom of God from anything that happens to us in our lives. God is not short sighted, nor does he ever have to apologize because he didn't foresee anything in advance or something in advance. You remember what Paul says at the conclusion of that chapter, Romans chapter 11, verse 34? For who hath known the mind of the Lord? This is spoken to the person who would question the wisdom of God. Who would say, Lord, you're really not wise, you're unjust, you're unfair. Paul says, who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? Were you around when God eternally decreed all that he did? Were you there to counsel and say, Lord, that's not the best plan? God is wise, he sees all, he knows all. He is wise in everything He does. And if there had been a better plan for your life or for mine, it would have been the plan which God determined to use. There are no accidents. God is wise in all that He does. You see, we simply see a slice of life and how that slice of life affects us. We don't consider the ramifications of that and how it affects and touches so many other lives. We do not see the end from the beginning. God sees the end from the beginning and He sees not only how it does affect our lives, but how it affects everyone else's life and how it will bring glory to Him. Third, we must not dissociate the love of God from anything that happens to us in our lives. can't dissociate His sovereignty, His wisdom, thirdly, His love from anything that happens to us in our lives. God even intends, dear ones, and uses the most severe trials for our good. You remember what Joseph said to his brethren, after he had been sold into slavery unjustly, out of hatred and malice, they left him to die there. He says to his brothers, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. To bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Do you think that Joseph saw that plan? The end from the beginning when he was thrown into that pit and left to die there? God did. And God did so for Joseph's good as well as for the good of all of his people. It was meant for evil. But God meant it for good. We also know from Romans 8.28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. For they're good because He loves them. And fourthly and lastly, we must not dissociate the righteousness of God from anything that happens to us. The chastening of the Lord, beloved, comes to us not only for our rebellion against God, and this may be even more difficult of a lesson to learn, but God's chastening in our lives and the trials that we go through not only comes because At times we're rebellious and we must be brought back on track. But even when we are walking on that path of righteousness and truth, God brings affliction. God brings trial into our life to instruct us, to teach us, to sanctify us, to draw us even closer in communion with Him, to avail ourselves of His mercy and of His grace. And He is absolutely righteous in doing so. Because the Lord knows that's the way in which we learn. Most of us learn when there are afflictions in our lives and in the comforts and in the blessings that God bestows upon us to simply leave us in that condition for the rest of our life. Most of us know ourselves too well That we would not seek after the face of a God, but we would become, or at least be inclined to become, apathetic, indifferent, complacent in our walk with the Lord. God chases us out of our comfort zone to build character. And He's absolutely righteous in doing so. Because His chastening is as a Father who loves us and is always righteous. Righteous. Second main point. Not only, dear ones, do we see in this passage the Lord's judgment threatened against the body of His people, but we also see correspondingly the Lord's judgment threatened against the soul of His people. Not only against the body of His people for their oppression of the bodies of God's people, but also He brings His judgment or threatens His judgment against the soul of his people because their souls have departed from the living God. Two aspects to this judgment against the soul. First of all, it is a judgment of silence. In verses 6 and 7, a judgment of silence. Prophesy ye not, say they to them that prophesy, They shall not prophesy to them that they shall not take shame. O thou that art named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord straitened? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? The people of Israel and Judah take up the words against God's prophets and ministers that are found in verse 6. It is the people of Israel and Judah. It is the common people. It is the priests. It is the prophets. It is the princes and the kings that say to the true prophets, Prophesy ye not. Stop prophesying to us. Is what the people of Israel and Judah tell God's prophets and ministers. Stop prophesying to us concerning our sin and concerning the judgment of the Lord. We don't want to hear such negative messages anymore. We want to hear upbeat sermons, positive messages. That's what we want to hear. We want to hear the promises of peace and prosperity thus we see from time to time in the Old Testament Scriptures and in the New Testament Scriptures how the kings, priests, false prophets, and general populace sought to silence the faithful prophets of the Lord. In Jeremiah 26 verse 8, says, Now it came to pass when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak unto all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people took him, saying, Thou shalt surely die. This was their reaction for speaking the truth. Let's get rid of this guy. Let's silence him once and for all. Let's put him to death. That is exactly what the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees sought to do with our Lord. How many times did they seek to stone him, to silence him, because of the truth he proclaimed, because of the so called negative message? Or consider the apostles and how the same religious leaders sought to silence them by imprisoning them, by beating them, and by slaying Stephen, by slaying James, and by eventually putting most of the disciples to death. Through these means. And certainly we find this to be the case of the two faithful witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. They can't stand the message which comes from these two faithful witnesses, which represents that faithful remnant of God's people who prophesy, who proclaim the truth during the time of great apostasy. And yet, nevertheless, they remain faithful to the Lord. What do they seek to do? They try to silence them through putting them to death. But God raises them up again, maybe not in the same body which went to the grave, but in the body and in the spirit. Their spirit lives on in witnesses which follow from them who proclaim the truth. You cannot destroy the truth. You cannot hedge in the truth of God. You may destroy the body, but you can't destroy the truth. God will see that His truth and His righteousness goes forth through His faithful witnesses. But this has been the attitude all along of those who have sought to silence the faithfulness of God's ministers and prophets. and again, dear ones, God's judgment is fitted to the sin that is committed in this case as well. For if they would silence the faithful preaching of God's word, if they would close their ears and turn their hearts away from the faithful ministers which God has given to them, God says, you shall have silence from the Lord hear any more from me. And that's what the Lord says in Micah chapter 2. Verse 6. These false prophets, priests, and the people say, prophesy ye not. God says, say to them, they shall not prophesy to them. That is, true prophets will not prophesy to them. To those who tell the true prophets not to prophesy the judgment that they have sought to bring upon God's true prophets falls on their own heads so that the revelation, the understanding and knowledge of the truth is taken from them. And in verse 7, the prophet says, you call yourselves the house of Jacob, but here you are trying to fit the spirit of the Lord who speaks through his faithful ministers into your own comfortable lifestyle. Can you straighten the spirit of God? Can you conform God's Sovereign spirit into your likes and your dislikes? Who do you think you are? Were these the doings of Jacob? Is this the way Jacob responded to the word of God which came to him? Did he try to silence God's word? You call yourself the house of Jacob. Well, do you do what Jacob did? Don't you understand, the prophet says to Israel and Judah, don't you understand that even my words of threatened judgment are intended for your benefit and for your good? If you'll simply respond and hear the mercy of God which is extended to you, even in the judgment that is threatened as he warns you, turn to him, embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, dear ones, we see either the humility or the pride in our life in the way we respond to the so-called negative messages of God. We see whether we're truly walking in humility before the Lord or whether we are walking in pride in the way we respond to the warnings, to the rebukes, to the reproofs, to the correction, to the trials, to the chastening that comes in our life. Do we make excuses? Do we have rationalizations? Do we blame others? Or do we accept what we have done and simply fall upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ? You see, God's warnings are not intended for our destruction. They're intended to turn us away from that destruction. Therefore, the so-called negative messages ought to be embraced by God's people, not thrown away and cast away from us. Because in a warning is the mercy of God displayed. If our eyes would be simply open. Do we proudly plug our ears, dear ones, to that which we don't like? Or do we humbly open them because we realize we are sinners in constant need of God's correction? Consider the very sobering words, dear ones, of the Lord as proclaimed in Proverbs chapter 1. As he cries out in the personification of wisdom. Listen to what the Lord says. Proverbs 1.20 and following. Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse, in the openings of the gates, in the city she uttereth her words, saying, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit upon you. I will make known my words unto you. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But ye have set at naught all my counsel and with none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh. As a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel, they despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But it ends on this note. That chapter ends on this note. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from fear of evil. You see the mercy of the Lord, dear ones. Yes, judgment. Yes, correction, warning, if we turn our ears from His reproof. But if we hear and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, His righteousness, His promises, if we tremble at His warnings, God promises us peace even in the midst of calamity. The second Judgment that would fall upon the souls of Israel and Judah. Not only a judgment of silence, but a judgment of delusion. In chapter 2, verse 11. If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. If there comes along one who proclaims himself to be a prophet of God and he promises you simply prosperity and peace and good times, he's the one that you'll embrace as your prophet because that's what you want to hear. Because it's what you want to hear, he's the one you will believe and follow after. Not only does the Lord give silence to them who will not receive His word, but He also sends deception, confusion, lukewarmness, apathy, indifference, and callousness in their soul. If we would, dear ones, rather believe a lie than the truth, God will give us over to our desire. He will give us over to our desire. You remember, God sent a lying spirit into the mouths of the false prophets so that Ahab might believe their word. Because he chose not to believe the faithful preaching of Micaiah, God's prophet, who said, don't go out into that battle. Because if you do, you won't return, Ahab But Ahab had already made up in his mind that Micaiah never spoke anything good about him. Naturally, because Ahab was a very wicked ruler, he had made up his mind already that he didn't like the negative message. And he believed the lying spirit which God placed into the mouths of the false prophets that said, go forth, There's victory ahead. There's peace. There's prosperity. Reminds me also of the sobering words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That because they do not believe the truth, because they do not love the truth, because they do not embrace the truth, God will give them over to delusion. to to deception, to believe a lie. What a sobering message to us all how we must love the truth and not sell it for anything. It doesn't matter how hard it makes our life. It doesn't matter who questions us, who persecutes us. We must embrace the truth and be willing to stand for it. Because if we don't, if we give way to the truth, once we know and understand it and see it and we give way to it and believe a lie, we are given over to that lie. God, help us to repent in any area where we have not been willing to believe the truth because of the consequences that it brings down the road. Dear ones, it's also important because of this, because God gives us over to delusion, to deception, if we believe a lie. It's so important that we do not submit ourselves to ministers because we like what they say or because they're dynamic preachers, or because they are entertaining preachers, or because they have a large following, or because they have several degrees behind their name. We should submit ourselves to ministers because they preach the whole counsel of God without apology or without compromise. We should submit ourselves to such ministers because they demonstrate themselves to be the ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ and not the ministers of that which is fashionable, that which is popular. We should submit ourselves to such ministers because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and we want to hear His word. We don't want to be entertained. We don't want to hear what we want to hear. We want to hear what Jesus says. We don't want our ears tickled. We want the truth. Because of these obstinate sins, dear ones, because of oppression and idolatry, oppression against the bodies of God's people and and. And idolatry in the soul and falling away from the Lord, the Lord yet comes to his people today, just as he did through Micah, coming to Israel and Judah of old. So he comes to us through his faithful ministers, pleading in mercy to repent. Remember these prophecies Beloved, remember these prophecies, although containing God's threatened judgment, are filled with God's mercy to turn to Him and be healed. Listen to Ezekiel 33.11 as I close. The Lord says, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? And I extend to you, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, I extend to you an invitation today. Hear the gracious invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not turn a deaf ear to His call to come to Him today. Don't wait to feel that level of conviction that you think you should feel in your heart before you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't wait till you have gotten rid of that habit before you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Him. Embrace Him now. Embrace Him as an all-sufficient Savior. As one who is all-powerful. Whose love will reach even to you and rescue and save you and give you the strength to persevere whatever you are now going through, whose righteousness will become your righteousness, whose mercy and grace will become yours. For, dear ones, in the Lord Jehovah, in the Lord Jehovah, not in any external privileges, that we have, but in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Stand with me at this time, dear ones, in prayer, please. Our Father, we do tremble before Thee and Thy warnings, and yet, Lord, we recognize that Thy warnings of threatened judgment are mercy to us. They are intended to draw us unto thee. Oh, let us hear the, the call, the invitation to come to thee. Let us not continue to wander in our sin, to ignore and neglect thee, our Father. Cause us to embrace, Father, the Lord Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. Cause us, Lord, in our own Christian lives This day, to see that we need continuously to come to Christ. We need to to avail ourselves of His mercy and grace moment by moment, lest we fall away, lest, Father, we become deluded. We ask our God that Thou would awaken this nation. That Thou would awaken all of the covenanted nations, Canada, the United States, England, Ireland, Scotland, Australia, New Zealand, and many others. O God, awaken us to our covenanted duties and obligations to Thee, our Lord, through that matrimonial covenant. We ask our God that Thou would cause ministers to stand again for the truth. That Thou would send forth those, O Lord, who would not be ashamed, who would not be afraid to proclaim faithfully Thy word, even as Micah proclaimed to Thy people, as did Jeremiah, as did Micaiah, as did the prophets, apostles, and chiefly our Lord Jesus Christ. And cause us to see, Father, that if we would be glorified with thee. We must suffer with thee. We must be willing to carry the cross to put to death our sins, to put to death those sinful affections. We ask our God that thou would lead us in the path of everlasting truth and righteousness for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.